0: I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn to grow and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread God's love to one more person. As uh, Bill Worsley was saying, we, you know, it kind of feels we're moving into summer, like we're talking about this afternoon is a barbecue with Gethsemane, and then we've got this summer, apparently the summer surge, the, but I think it's called the summer plunge, uh, but it could, it could be whatever word you want if you sign up. Look, you can put any word there, but again, an opportunity for folks to kind of step in. And If you're newer and don't really have a place you've found to get more plugged in, great way to do that, to meet some other people and to contribute to, to, uh, to what God's doing here. It's a really cool, really cool thing. Because we're headed towards the summer, we know that also means uh, that there's a bunch of folks uh, about to graduate from Davidson College, uh, which is I've been told not the easiest thing you've ever done. Back in the day, it was a cinch, but uh, they've really beefed it up the last few years, I hear. Uh, but uh, I know nobody likes this, but quick show of hands. Do we have anybody who's about to graduate? Uh, Davidson in the? Hey, very good. Yeah. Well well, that's fabulous. Have a great time.. <laughs> No, we're very uh, excited and, uh, for you guys, and know there's a little bit longer to run and all that kind of thing. We had some folks in the first service as well, but excited for you guys, proud of you, and you never need a reason to come back. You, you are always welcome here. We would love to have you here. We will be here sweltering in this gym, and uh, we would love to have you come be with us. That would be fabulous. Congratulations. We would usually do that next week, but next week is uh, New Ministry Partners and Baptisms, and that's going to be a really full service, so... Figured we would at least recognize people this week excited for the next steps. Uh, I think that's it. So, some years ago, my wife Mandy and I returned home from a vacation and we discovered that the air conditioning unit had quit cooling our house. In other words, we walked into a house that was just recycling hot, stale air. So, what's the first thing we did? Cussed, that's right. <laughs> At least, I mean, I'm a pastor. I don't cuss, but Mandy, I'm sure. <laughs> the, um, what was the second thing we did? We, we, the second thing we did before we called the repairman, we opened a window. We cracked open a window. And because I'm always looking for analogies, this is one of the difficulties of being a preacher. You're always trying to think of analogies. Because I'm always trying to think of analogies I realized as I stood there feeling the breeze come in through the open window that, in fact, this is what a lot of people who had impact on my life, this is what they did. They didn't try to win the argument. They didn't try to totally change everything about me. They tried to open a window and let in some fresh air. They introduced a new possibility, and then they, they just let God take it from there. And so I was was just intrigued by that. Their impact on me was subtle, but it was profound. It was kind of like fresh air in my heart, fresh air in my mind, fresh air coming in through an open window. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, Today we want to wrap up our series of sermons called, Now What? We've been trying to learn from the earliest disciples of Jesus as they started to answer the question, Now What? Now What? Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus is resurrected, the world has changed, now what? Our lives are changed, now what? So we've been seeing, for example, how the earliest Christians became convinced of the truth of the resurrection, that they studied, that they searched, that they asked questions, and ultimately that they became convinced of the truth of the resurrection, that it was real, that it really happened then they started to gather together in community they decided they were not going to follow jesus solo that they were going to follow jesus with within the gift of community and then within that community they used what they had to serve the needs of others they gave generously to help others and they started to exercise these muscles within their church family but ultimately, that led them outside of their church family, which is the fourth thing I want to look at today, which is that the earliest Christians respectfully engaged a pluralistic world. The earliest Christians respectfully engaged a pluralistic world. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The earliest Christians lived in the Roman Empire. Don't know if you remember learning much about the Roman Empire, but they had all kinds of gods in the Roman Empire. I was trying to count them earlier how many they had I, 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 I V, 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 I, V, I, I, Roman numerals. Thank you very much. They had all kinds of gods in the Roman Empire. People believed all kinds of things. They worshipped all kinds of things. Some people worshipped Jupiter. Some people worshipped the emperor. Some people uh, didn't believe in the gods thing at all. They followed philosophies that cared less about the gods and more about how humans should live. Some people joined cults. There were all kinds of cults in the Roman Empire. And then Jesus comes into the world. Jesus lives and dies and resurrects. Jesus changes the world, Jesus paves the way for any person to come to God, Jesus paves the way for anyone to be eternally God's son or daughter by faith. But it's not like the whole world became Christian. People continued to believe all kinds of things and worship all kinds of things, that's what it means to be pluralistic, to believe all kinds of things, to worship all kinds of things. So what did followers of Jesus do? they ask themselves, well, now what? How do we respond? Do we hide? Do we get defensive? Do we try to buddy up to the emperor? Do we try to overthrow the emperor? What do we do? What they decided to do was to respectfully engage that pluralistic world. Now, you and I can relate to the early Christians on this front. Let's say you're a Christian, or that sometime in the future you become a Christian. When that happens, your world changes. The Bible says you become a new creation. When you put your faith in Christ, that you are a new creation. You are made new. Your world changes. But that doesn't mean that the world around you entirely changes. You and I will still be part of a world that believes all kinds of things and worships all kinds of things, So what do we do? And I contend we follow the examples of the earliest Christians. We respectfully engage a pluralistic world. We respectfully engage the people in a pluralistic world. With gentleness and respect, we share the reason that we have found hope in Jesus. Not so much trying to win the argument, just trying to open up a window and let in some fresh air. One of the best biblical examples of this Uh, is from the the passage that Chris read for us earlier, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now, if you do not have a a Bible, you are free to take the one in the chair near you as our gift to you. The setup or pack-up team would love for you to take that Bible, but you could also download a, a free app for a smart device, a lot of ways to have access to the bible so we're in acts chapter 17 in acts chapter 17 there's a guy named paul paul is an early leader within the christian church he is a very well-educated person a very smart person he follows jesus and he is sitting in one of the intellectual centers of their time in athens and here's what we learn we learn that number one oh so i should introduce before i read the scripture we're looking at, I'm about to introduce four things that I think Paul does, four things that he does as he's sitting here in Athens that you or I could learn from. How did Paul respectfully engage with this pluralistic world? How might you or I do the same thing? So here we go. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. As a Christian, Paul saw the world around him through a different lens. He saw the world around him through a different lens. Verse 16 while Paul was waiting for them, for some other Christians in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This means that in Athens, there were statues to all kinds of gods, to Jupiter, to Venus, to Athena most likely, because uh, it was Athens. So there's all these kind of gods, and these are, some people would see these statues and they would worship the statue. Other people would see the statues and they would say, "'By Jove, what exquisite marble work.'" That's a very fancy art critic, if you couldn't tell. But when Paul saw these statues, it says he became distressed. So, he saw the world through a different lens. Because of his faith in Christ, he saw the world through a different lens, and in this instance, these statues that thousands of people walked by and didn't notice, or that some people walked by and worshipped, or some people commented on the marble work or whatever, these statues distressed Paul. Paul looked at these and said, "Wait a minute, that the, they're missing it. You know that they they uh, have these statues that represent the virtues of their culture." but they don't know anything about the God who created the land and the sea, the heaven and earth, who created virtues and culture. So he saw the world through a different lens. This is important because of number two, Paul let his distress lead him to engagement. Paul let his distress lead him to engagement. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. This is an important detail because distress can lead us in all sorts of directions. For some of us, the, the thing that holds us back or makes us most hesitant to become a Christian is that we have a friend or family member who is And that they have become distressed with the condition of the world, and that's led them to become very judgmental. Or that's led them to become become very insular, very isolated. They're almost in like a a cult-like group, and you've never heard from them again. Now, it's going to be up to you to figure out what's the baby and what's the bathwater on this one, because distress does not necessarily have to lead you in those directions. As Jesus begins to change your perception of the world, it's very likely you'll become less and less satisfied with its condition. But you don't have to become judgmental about that, or you don't have to become defensive or secluded about that. You can engage with that world. You can be part of bringing heaven to earth. That's what Paul does. Paul let his distress lead him to engagement. He goes to the marketplace. He goes to the synagogue. He starts to engage people in conversation about these idols. Now, this is a point where some people want to call a timeout and they want to say, now, uh, now wait a minute. I am all for serving people in Jesus' name, but I don't really want to have to say anything about Jesus. And that's a fair uh, concern, and I'm going to push against it a little bit by saying that I don't think God wants the followers of Jesus to be like possums. You probably knew I was going to say that. A possum really only has one tool in its toolbox, and that is roll over and play dead. When a possum feels threatened, it rolls over, it plays dead, and hopes the threat goes away. And so what I'm saying to you and to me is I think we need to have a couple tools in our toolbox. So yes, serve people in Jesus' name. That's a wonderful thing. But what's going to happen if someone says to you something like, man, you don't seem as stressed out about this as I am. Why is that? I want you to be able to do more than sort of roll over and play dead. Just look at them dumbfounded for minutes on end and hope they forgot they asked you a question. I mean, you could find a way maybe in your own words to say something, you know, like, man, this is hard for me to talk about, but like my faith in Jesus is making a difference in my life. Or if someone were to introduce you to an article or to a book that seemed to uh, refute or to discount some core convictions of the Christian faith, I want you to have another tool in your toolbox than to roll over and play dead and hope they forget they handed you the book or the article. I also don't want you to be a jerk, but to respectfully engage in the discussion, respectfully engage with what's being presented to you. Number three, Paul looked for windows he could open. Paul looked for windows he could open. This is metaphorically speaking now. He was looking for little ways to introduce fresh air. He was looking for little ways to put a little breeze into the hearts, the minds of people with whom he he was speaking. So the more Paul was speaking with people in the synagogues and out in the marketplace, a big group of people was wanting to come and talk to Paul. They were very interested. Some people were open to following Jesus. Other people were saying, by Jove, this fellow has wild notions. It's the same guy from earlier, if you couldn't tell. So Paul says this to this growing group of people. He says, God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Now you'll notice there the quotation marks. Why the quotation marks? Well, in most Bibles there would be footnotes that would tell you why. If they didn't have footnotes, you can always Google, and, and that'll usually pop something up. But I'll just tell you what it is. The first is a quote from the philosopher Epimenides. The second is a quote from the philosopher Aratus. For those keeping score at home, then, when Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, he twice quotes non-Christian philosophers and zero times quotes a Bible verse. Now, that's not to say the Bible's not important. The Bible is important. But Paul's trying to do something else here. Paul is looking for windows into people's lives. Paul is looking for something that somebody already believes, and he's tying that to God. So in this case, he's quoting some well-known philosophers of that time and trying to let a little fresh air into people's hearts, into people's minds, and then let God take it from there. He takes something a person already believes and ties it back to God. Because Paul was a student of the Old Testament, he would have known Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says that he, God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in the heart of each person. God has set eternity in your heart. And we are hungry, and we are thirsty, and we are yearning for God. It comes out in our art, it comes out in our cultures, it comes out in our failures. We want something deeply. We are yearning for something deeply. We want to know and be known by our maker. And so Paul says this. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He affirms the best intent in what distressed him. He affirmed the best intent and what distressed him. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul's walking around Athens, and he sees an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So the people in Athens are admitting, there may well be some God out there that we don't even know about. Maybe a God so powerful that you cannot speak His name. Paul sees this and thinks, you're yearning for this thing, but it has no form. Let me give some definition to you. Let me give definition to this God you are yearning for. Let me put some skin on this for you. He goes on to tell them about God with a capital G. Now, how might we do this in our time? The same idea. Open a window. Find something that you or that I or that somebody else already believes and link it to God. For instance, I meet a lot of people, uh, and I think this is a good thing, that they are advocating for the rights of this or that group. They are insisting that this or that person deserves better treatment. So you could crack open a window there and say, now again, find your own words, but say something like, I think it's great that, that you see the deep value that person has or that that group of people has. Where did that deep value come from? I mean, do products of random chance have deep value? You might not say the last piece necessarily, but that's the question you, 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 it's worth asking. Another thing we, we see uh, sometimes uh, in our world today is folks who will at all costs defend the politicians or political pundits who agree with them. This is actually the only bipartisan thing we do. Both sides of the aisle are excellent at this. Defending at all costs the politicians or pundits that believe just like you. So again, you could crack open a window there and, and say something like, uh, again, put it in your own words, but um, you know, we, we all have a, a, a need for unshakable security. Do you think there's a person alive who could give that to us? The, the point being, God put eternity in our hearts. And so we long for these things. We long to acknowledge the value of people. We long to have unshakable security. We long to find something or someone we can put all of our trust in. And so this is why number four is important. Number four, number four, number, 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 number four. Paul kept focused on Christianity's central message, which is, It is not about what we do for God, but what God has done for us through Jesus. Verse 25, Paul says this, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Is this life primarily about what we need to do or what has already been done for us? is this life primarily a goal that we need to achieve or a reality that we need to embrace this is the thing that makes christian faith seem a little strange in a pluralistic world within christian faith we would say what's most important is what god has already done for us not what we do for god and when paul shared this in athens some people laughed and some people believed some people turn their lives in God's direction. They turn their lives over to God. They did so in Jesus' name. They walk back down that path to God that Jesus had paved. So at the risk of some folks laughing, here it is. What's most important is what God has already done for us, not what we do for God. God does not need us. We need God and god has met us at our point of need god has put skin on our deepest yearnings and he did so by putting on skin how does the creator of everything show people what he's like how does the creator of everything show people that he loves us he became human god so loved the world that he came to earth as jesus fully god and fully human he lived a perfect life died a criminal's death in our place and then he walked out of the grave into eternal life promising his followers that we will do the same you can know and be known by your maker and here's what you need to do about it nothing that's your to-do list people trying to break in to hear this sermon You can know and be known by your Creator, by your Maker, and the thing you need to do about it is nothing. Jesus has already done it all. So come and receive that gift. Come and receive the gift that Jesus offers. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God in Jesus' name. And when you are reconciled to God through Jesus, you can know that you are God's child. You are God's son. You are his daughter eternally by faith. So here's my question for you as we have a time of prayer and communion. As you look at your life or as you look at the world around you, where do you see a yearning for God? As you look at your life, as you look at the world around you, where do you see a yearning for God? Where do you see that eternity that God has placed in your heart and the heart of everybody else? Where do you see that playing out? Is it in your convictions? Is it in what you pursue? Is it what led you down a bad path? We cannot help but yearn for God, and that yearning cannot help but play out in our lives. But this morning, what we want to do is not just acknowledge the yearning, we want to tie the yearning into its satisfaction. Jesus instituted communion as the way that His followers could put skin on the satisfaction to our yearnings. Do you yearn to be right with God? Do you yearn to be closer to God? Do you yearn to know and be known by God? You can do so, and you can do so through Jesus, because He loves you. But not only does He love you, His love is real, His love is sacrificial, and His love is victorious. So while the yearnings you and I experience are real, what the communion table is about is that the satisfaction of those yearnings is real. And not only is the satisfaction real, it is sacrificial and it is victorious because the satisfaction of our deepest yearnings is ultimately Jesus and a growing relationship with Him and the way that He leads us back into communion with God. So with that, I'm going to invite us all into a time of extended prayer and a time when Christians can come and receive communion. So I will say to you, if you are a a Christian, no matter what branch of the Christian family tree you fell out of, if you follow Jesus, I would encourage you to come and receive. If you very recently become a Christian or today you would like to become a Christian, I would encourage you to come and receive. There's six stations around the room where you can do that. They are all the same, uh, except for two. There will be two in the middle and in the four corners. The two different ones are in that corner is the gluten-free station. In that corner is the kneeling station. At any of these, you could come, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive it there. It's a beautiful way to acknowledge that you and I have decided to follow Christ, that we have decided to come and receive His gift. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth. He wrote, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together.